If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it and turn to uh, Jeremiah 18 in the Old Testament. Find the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and then find the 18th chapter. We're going to spend some time looking at the first 11 verses. And again, welcome our folks in the video venue and join us online. I know Tracy Watson is our online host and she's there to serve you in any way possible. We're just glad that you're joining us this morning. This is the beginning of a very brief series called The Potter's Hands. And what I want to really do is use these verses in Jeremiah 18 to teach us some powerful truths about how God works in our lives or how God wants to work in our lives. One of the most common mistakes that a lot of people make in life today is we believe that the way things are today is the way things are going to be forever. And it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about that from a good perspective or a bad perspective. We can think, you know, the economy will always be as good as it is right now or the economy will always be as bad as it is right now. We can think my job, my business, my professional life, whatever it might be, will always be as good as it is right now or it will always be as bad as it is right now. This relationship will always be as good as it is or it'll always be as bad as it is right now. Uh, My health will always be as good as it is right now, or it'll always be as bad as it is right now. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. The truth is, though, very few things in life, and I think at the end of the day we would all agree about this, very few things in life will stay the same as they are right now. In life, things get better and things get worse. I mean, you could be the model of health. You could be someone who never gets sick. I mean, you never even get a cold, not even a sniffle. And you could go to the doctor for a routine checkup and find out that you have some kind of a life-threatening disease. That's just kind of the randomness of life. And so it's a mistake to think that the way things are today, that's the way it's going to be forever. You know, my wife Sandy and I, we have our entire family living right here literally, literally within five minutes of our home, our children, our grandchildren, everybody's right here, and it's incredible. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, i got to be honest and say I can't imagine not having that be the way it is, but it would be naive for us to think that it'll always be that way because it won't. The way things are today are not going to be that way forever. Now, if you stop and think about that, this truth is both an encouragement and a warning at the same time. I mean, it's encouraging to know if you're going through a really difficult time in life, it's encouraging to know that it's not going to be that way forever. And oftentimes, we need to be warned against believing that all the good things in our lives are going to go on forever. No matter what the circumstance of your life today, I can pretty much guarantee you that it's not going to be this way forever. Let me say it like this. I can pretty much guarantee you that it is not going to be the end. This is not the end for you. And that is one of the truths that I find in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. And that's what we're going to talk about. So if you got your Bible open to that passage, I want to invite you wherever you are to stand with me, like we always do, in reverence and respect for God's Word. If you're a guest with us today, I want you to know it's a great joy to welcome you into our service. I mean that sincerely. We love having guests worship with us, and we hope uh, it'll be a great experience for you. But this is what we do every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and we stand in reverence and respect for God's Word when we do it. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. I've got my NIV Bible. You follow along. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. 
But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look... I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you, so turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Okay, there it is. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You can be seated this morning. That's our passage we're going to look at together. What I want to do is I want to use this text to give you three reasons why what you're experiencing in your life right now doesn't have to be the end. As I mentioned, we're going to spend some time in this passage of Scripture beyond today, and we're going to get into some deeper meanings in this passage in weeks to come, but I want to start with the most basic, most fundamental truth, and I'm going to do that in a message called, This Is Not the End. Three reasons why what you're experiencing in your life today doesn't have to be the end. The first one is this. Let's just jump right in. Write down in your notes next to number one these words, the potter is at the wheel. The potter is at the wheel. That's number one. And you notice on the screen that the word potter is capitalized because in this passage of Scripture, in this analogy, God is the potter. He is like the divine potter. He's putting himself in that position. And that's the point that is made in this passage right from the beginning. It's really just another way of saying or reminding us that God is in control, which is important to note because I think we would all agree that sometimes as we go through the day-to-day realities of life, it doesn't feel that way. Is that a fair statement? I mean, sometimes for all of us, as we go through the day-to-day realities of life, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't look like, God is in control. Sometimes His presence is hard to see, but here's the deal. Even though it may feel that way at times, we need to remind ourselves that that's never the case. There is a divine potter. He is seated at the potter's wheel of your life, and He is shaping and molding you into the person that He wants you to be and the person that He knows you are capable of becoming, even though sometimes, honestly, that's hard to see. I read a story this week that kind of reminded me of this truth, that sometimes it's hard to see God in the day-to-day realities of life. The story I read talked about the waters that surrounded the island of Greenland. It said in those waters, there are some, there are lots rather, of icebergs, and some of them are incredibly large, and some of them are very small. And the strangest things happens when you just sit and look at them. Maybe you're on a boat, and you're touring that part of the world, and you just kind of look at the icebergs. Sometimes the strangest thing happens, you'll notice that the smaller icebergs will be moving in one direction while the larger icebergs will be moving in another direction. And so the question is, how in the world does that happen? And the answer really honestly is very simple. The smaller icebergs are driven by surface winds while the larger icebergs are carried along by deep ocean 
currents. You can't see the currents, but they are there. And so if an iceberg is large enough, if it has sufficient depth, it can be carried by the current in spite of which way the wind is blowing. Again, you can't see the current, but it's there. And that's the way it is oftentimes with God. You can't see Him, but He is there. Several years ago, Bertrand Russell, who was an early 20th century atheist and outspoken critic of religion, was asked what he would say if upon his death he met God face to face. And his answer was, God, you gave us insufficient evidence. Richard Dawkins, who is a modern-day atheist, has been recorded as giving the same response to the same question. And honestly, there are probably a lot of people who feel this same way because, as I said earlier, the presence of God is not always clearly seen. It's not always clearly visible in the day-to-day realities of life. But we've got to remind ourselves that He's there. The last time I was over at the Impact Center, the Impact Center is the new name that we've given to our community ministry center uh, where we distribute food and clothing to people in need. So the last time I was over at the Impact Center on what we call Impact Thursday when our folks come, I was sharing with the people that were there from the Word of God, and I was talking to them about the story, the Old Testament story of Ruth. And I was talking to them about how a few years ago, as a church, we went through this incredible sermon series called The Story, where we spent 32 weeks. We began in the book of Genesis, we ended in the book of Revelation, and we went all the way through the Bible talking about how the Bible is really God's one big connected story. How many of you remember that? Do you remember that? Say yes. Makes me feel better, even if you don't. We remember that. It was a great study to see how the Bible, which seems like such a complicated book so often to so many people, is really just God's one big connected story. It's all connected. It's the story of God. And I was telling them, and this is especially true in the book of Ruth, if you know the story, how the one thing that we talked about over and over again is that as we go through life, there are really two stories that are happening at the same time. They run parallel with each other. There's a lower story, that's where we live our lives, and there's an upper story, that's where God lives. The lower story and the upper story. And all the way through that story, uh, or that sermon series called The Story, we talked about how as we go through our lower story lives, it's hard for us to see what God is doing or where God's at or what God's thinking in His upper story. And oftentimes, you have to get down the road and look backwards to say, oh, that's where God was or that's what God was doing in the upper story the whole time. But it's not visible to us in our lower story lives. This is just the reality of the way God chooses to work. You know, if we go back to the illustration of the iceberg, we have to say that since God exists primarily in the deep ocean currents of life, since God cannot be mathematically definable, since God doesn't hold press conferences, it's easy for some people to conclude that He doesn't exist, but that's just not true. He is at the potter's will. He's the divine potter at the potter's will, and He is in control. I read a while back that modern science cannot locate the exact part of the brain that makes decisions. Science can pinpoint the part of your brain where decisions are carried out, but it can't pinpoint where those decisions are actually made. But in spite of the lack of adequate scientific evidence, 
or scientific explanation, we know that there is, in fact, a decision-making function in the brain. How do we know that? We know that because there's evidence. For example, all of us are here this morning and not still standing in our closets trying to decide what to wear. We all, at some point this morning, reached a decision about our wardrobe, although looking around, it's a questionable decision for some of us. (laughs) Here's what we need to understand. God may not always be empirically discernible, but He is always intuitively discernible. Think about that for a moment. God may not always be empirically discernible. In other words, we might not always be able to discern Him with our empirical senses. We may not always be able to see or hear. You know, these are our empirical senses. We might not always be able to discern Him that way, but we can always know that He is intuitively discernible. And it's really as simple as this. If you look for God, you will find Him. I believe that's true. How many of you believe that's true? If you look for God, you will find Him. How many times have you heard me say to you, if you move toward God, He what? He moves toward you. This is just an immutable spiritual truth of the world that God has created. In fact, It's a truth that the prophet Jeremiah, or that God actually spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in this same Old Testament book that we're studying. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This time it's Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Look at these words on the screen. God says through Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. If you look for God, you're going to find him. Now, here's the opposite. If you close your eyes to him, you won't. If you close your eyes to God, you're not going to find him. It's as simple as that. But when you look for him, you're going to find him. And when you find him, you'll find him as the divine potter seated at the potter's will, ready to shape and mold your life. Write down next to number two these words. Here's the second truth that I'm gleaning from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. The potter, remember, we're talking about God. The potter can shape your life into a masterpiece. The potter, and it's capitalized there again because we're talking about God. The potter can shape your life into a masterpiece. See, here's the thing that we all need to understand. Just because the divine potter, God, is at the wheel, that doesn't mean you're not ever going to have any problems in your life. It doesn't mean you're not ever going to have any pain in your life. It doesn't mean you're not ever going to face disappointment in your life. In fact, look back at Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 4. Just the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse says, But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Now, that's the way it reads in my New International Version Bible. I actually like the way it's rendered in the New Living Translation better. In the New Living Translation, this is how it reads. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. It did not turn out as he had hoped. See, there are times when this becomes the reality of all of our lives. Our lives become marred even in the potter's hands. Our lives don't turn out not just the way we hoped, but they don't turn out the way God hopes sometimes as well. Now, I know that might sound odd because we understand the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign and in control of all things, but let's think about that for a moment. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God for a moment. Let me preface everything that I'm about to say by saying that it's really, on one hand, kind of ridiculous for somebody like me to try to talk about or explain the sovereignty of God. Because who am I as a finite creation to be able to accurately explain an infinite creator? We all have to understand that there's always going to be some level of mystery 
in our lives connected to an infinite God. We can't understand the realities and the depths and the reaches of an infinite God. And so when we start to talk about His sovereignty and how He chooses to exercise His sovereignty in the world, it sometimes become di- becomes difficult. But let me just, let me just try. I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you to see. And I want you just to think about it. When you hear it, when you see it, I want you just to think about it for a few minutes. I don't want you to, I want to, I don't want you to have an immediate response or draw an immediate conclusion. I just want you to think about it. Here it is. God doesn't design everything that happens, but He can redesign anything that happens. I'm going to say it again. God doesn't design everything that happens, but He can redesign anything that happens. Let's talk about that. I don't believe that every single thing that happens every single day of our lives happens by the design of God. Some people have a hard time believing that because of how they understand God's sovereignty, how they choose to understand the way God exercises His sovereignty in the world today. And honestly, some people have a hard time believing that and accepting that because they want to be able to assign blame to God for every bad thing that happens. I mean, just imagine going through the most horrendous, the most senseless, the most random kind of tragedy, the worst thing that you can imagine, and then concluding that it all just must have been the will of God. That's the way some people live. Back in 2012, shortly before the election, there was an Indiana politician who made national headlines when he said that if a woman becomes pregnant during a sexual assault, during a rape, then God intended for it to happen. What do you think about that? Don't answer out loud. What do you think about that? See, here's the question. Do we believe that if something happens, it must be the will of God? I will tell you this morning that I don't. I will tell you today that I think that there are things that happen every single day in our lives and in this world that are not the will of God, that are clearly not the will of God, and yet somehow the way God chooses to exercise His sovereignty allows those kinds of things to happen. And I think there's lots of examples of this in the Scripture. For example, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, when I read that verse and I apply my most fundamental rule that I use for understanding the Bible, you've heard me say it dozens of times over the years, when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. When I apply that rule of understanding, then I come to the conclusion that it is not the will of God for anyone to die before they come to repentance, or in other words, before they come to Christ. That's my conclusion. And yet every single day people die. Every single day, to use the words of the verse, every single day people perish without ever having come to repentance, without ever having come to Christ. That's just one example. That's why, personally, I believe that when Jesus was sharing the Sermon on the Mount and when he was teaching us how to pray by giving us a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer today, he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, he said, when you pray, pray like this, or your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in what? Say it with me, heaven. 
He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're to pray. Because God's will isn't always done on earth. It doesn't always take place on earth the way it takes place in heaven. In heaven, everything is as it should be all the time. On the earth, not so much. There are things that happen every single day on earth that happen outside of the will of God. And they affect our lives. And that takes us back to Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 4. The first part of the verse, remember, said, but the pot, and, and Jeremiah is watching a skilled potter work at the will, and God ultimately says, uh, he puts himself in the position of that potter. He's the divine potter. And the first part of Jeremiah 18.4 says, but, he, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Now, in the context of this passage, and this is something we'll talk about on a deeper level the next time we're together, the context of this passage is about the nation of Judah who had, because of rebellion and because of disobedience, not turned out the way God had intended. In other words, they had, because of rebellion and disobedience, become marred even in the potter's hands because they had not followed and obeyed the potter's will for their lives. So what did the potter do? We look at the entire verse. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Here's the rest of the verse. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Again, that's the New International Version. In the New Living Translation, it says, so he crushed it when it, when it was marred, when it didn't turn out as he hoped. It says the potter crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. He started over. And so here's our understanding. Not everything that happens in life is by the design of God, but if you let him, and in this case for Judah, in the context of the passage, it would happen through repentance. If you let him, God can reshape and redesign your life. In other words, there are things that happen outside of the will of God, but there is nothing that happens outside of God's power to redeem. Nothing. Not one single thing. And so if we let him, he can take the broken parts of our lives, the parts of our lives that are marred, the parts of our lives that didn't turn out how we hoped or how he hoped, and he can reshape them, not just into something different, but he can reshape them into something better. Listen, sometimes the clay of our lives gets marred by our own bad choices. I would, I would venture to guess that if we were all honest this morning, we would say that same thing. We've all made bad choices in our lives that have marred our lives on some level. Sometimes the clay of our lives gets marred by the choices that other people make. No fault of our own. The choices that other people make. And sometimes the clay of our lives gets marred just by the reality of living in a sinful fallen world. Sometimes we are victimized on some level at no fault of our own, just by living in this sinful, fallen world. This is the reality of life. And so we have experiences and we find ourselves in circumstances that are not what God originally planned or wanted for our lives. But that doesn't mean that your life is over because God, remember, who is that divine potter seated at the potter's will, can take the circumstances and experiences of your life and he can reshape them into something not just good, 
but something that's even better. Now, some people say, well, well why, do, why do these bad things even have to happen? Why can't this sovereign God just intervene and make bad things disappear? Why can't He just stop the bad things that mar our lives or keep our lives from turning out the way we hope? Why can't He just stop them before they happen? Well, again, we're talking about the sovereignty of God here. I don't know if I can give you a satisfactory explanation, but I'm going to try. I'm, I'm gonna try. Let's just imagine for a moment that we all have an elementary-aged son, and he goes to school. And for some reason, because we live in this sinful, fallen world, for some reason, there's a, an older boy in that elementary school that just decides he's going to bully your son. Who knows why? Who knows why? But he decides he's going to bully your son, and he makes life miserable for your son. And your son comes home, and he tells you about it. What are you going to do, Dad? How are you going to respond? Well, you can do a lot of things right away. You can, you can solve the problem right away by going to the school, and you can get in that little boy's face, and you can bully the bully, right? You can take care of it just like that. Maybe that's not the best choice, so you decide, well, I'm going to get my son. I'm going to go over to that boy's house, and I'm going to beat the snot out of his dad in front of his boy and my boy, and that's going to take care of the problem altogether just like that. Or maybe you decide, I'm just going to pull my son right out of school. I'm going to take him out of school. I'm going to homeschool him. I'm going to put him in a private school or something like that, and that's how I'm going to solve the problem. You can do any of those things, but honestly, those might not be the best choices. Instead, maybe you could go to school and you could speak to your son's teacher or teachers. Maybe you could go to school and you could speak to the administrators at the school and make them aware of the situation, and then you could talk to your son and you could teach him how to respond to these kinds of things in life. You can teach him how to respond to a bully. You can teach him how to stand up to a bully, how to stand up for himself. Now, let me ask you a question. Would it ever be your will as a father for your son to be in this kind of a situation? Everyone say no. No. When this happens, it is obviously outside of your will for your son. But when it happens, you do your absolute best to help him get through it. You intervene on a level that you think is best for him, not just to keep him safe, but also to teach him some powerful and important life lessons about courage and about how other people should be treated. Now, that's just a silly made-up story. But I want to tell you that in an even more perfect way, this is how God is involved in your life. And so rather than thinking that God is the one who's messing things up by not taking care of problems before they happen, you need to understand that He is actually the one who's going to help you get through it. God didn't give you cancer, but He'll help you get through cancer. God didn't create your financial problems, but He'll help you get through your financial problems. God didn't sabotage your marriage or give you rebellious children, but He'll help you get through those difficult family circumstances. And so instead of blaming God, we need to humble our hearts and see Him as the divine potter who has the ability when we submit to Him to reshape our lives into something beautiful. Thomas Nast was a 19th century political cartoonist who was the first person to draw the elephant as the symbol of the Republican Party. He was also the one who popularized the image of the donkey as the symbol of the Democratic Party. And there's a story that's told about him that honestly may or may not be 100% true, but it's a great story. It says, one afternoon he was painting in front of an audience, and he quickly sketched the landscape on a blank canvas uh, with meadows and with animals and with flowing fields and a farmhouse, a bright blue sky, a bright yellow sun, white clouds. It was really incredible. It was beautiful, especially for those who were there and seeing it 
be created right in front of their eyes. And when he was finished, he stepped back from the work, and the audience was so blessed by what he did, they just burst into spontaneous applause. But he wasn't finished. He took another palette of darker colors, and he began to just, at least this is the way it looked to the crowd that was there, he began to just recklessly apply them to that incredible pastoral scene that he had just created. He blotted out the sky and the meadows and the flowers until the landscape that he had painted previously looked to the common eye like it had been absolutely destroyed. And then he stepped back from the work again, and he looked at the audience, and he said, have you ever seen a painting like this before? And they just stood there in complete silence, kind of stunned, not believing what they had seen. They didn't know how to respond. And so he asked the stage attendants to come and place a gilded frame around the canvas that he'd been painting on. And then he asked them to turn the frame from a horizontal position to a vertical position, And in that new position, looking at that painting from a new perspective, they could see what he had done. He hadn't destroyed his painting. He'd turned it into something different. And that was actually the painting of a majestic waterfall with the water plunging over dark rocks surrounded by trees and greenery. And it was even more beautiful than the first painting Now, again, who knows if that story is 100% true. It might just be a fable, but I'll tell you what isn't a fable. God can do the very same thing with your life. He can take the blotches and the mistakes and the sections of marred clay that are a part of your life the way it is right now, and he can turn it into a masterpiece so that the way things are right now, this is not the end. This is not the end. God doesn't design everything that happens, but he can redesign anything that happens. And so don't you give up on your future ever. Never. And whatever might be going on in your life today, you just need to know this is not the end. In fact, say those words with me. Let me hear your voices. This is not the end. This is not the end. I want you to write down a third thing real quickly. The third thing that we're going to pull from this passage of Scripture is the potter needs pliable clay. You know, there's a sense in this whole story, in this whole analogy, in this whole illustration that you get to choose, in essence, your genetic makeup. You can be stone or you can be clay. You can be cold and old and brittle, or you can be pliable, moldable, and changeable. It's really up to you. It's your choice. You get to choose. You get to choose. This makes me think of an old hymn that we used to sing when I was a boy growing up in church. It dates me. It shows my age a little bit, but it doesn't bother me or make me ashamed at all. Maybe the same thing that comes to your mind when you hear this idea of a potter at the will and pliable clay and the way we need to humble and submit our hearts to God. It's an unusual thing to do it in the middle of a sermon, but just sing it with me. We'll put the words up on the screen. Have thine own way.
You know, there's a story behind that hymn, and the story behind the hymn is that it was actually inspired in part by this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, in particular, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. But that's not the only passage that inspired this hymn, because this is not the only place in the Scriptures where we see this illustration of God as the potter and each of us as the clay. In fact, in Isaiah, this is another passage that inspired the writing of this hymn, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. I want you to read these words with me. Let me hear your voices. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. We are all the work of your hand. Every day of our lives, we get to choose what kind of clay we're going to be. Now, some people seem to choose early on that they're not going to be pliable. They're going to be hard, and they're not going to change for anyone. I'm, they have an I'm not going to change for anyone kind of attitude. And the problem with that is that when the clay of their life gets marred, there's not much that can be done about it if they're going to be hard and not pliable. But it's not just that. We also every day get to choose, in a sense, who sits at the potter's will or if anyone even sits at the potter's will. Some people choose early on, I'm not surrendering my life to anybody. I'm not going to humble my heart to God or anybody. And so they live under the control of a random spinning wheel. At least that's the way it appears. And when the clay of their life gets marred, there's not much that can be done about it. But if you've ever seen a skilled potter at work with a lump of pliable clay, you clearly recognize the importance of both, both the skilled potter and the pliable clay. And when you are pliable and you surrender to the control of the divine potter, God, then He can take your life regardless of what shape it's in, regardless of if it's marred because of mistakes you've made or it's marred because of things that are not your fault at all, and He can reshape it into something that is absolutely incredible. That's a promise for all of us. Jeremiah 18, verses 5 through 6, a part of our text says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And it's not just Israel, it's you and me, it's all of us in the potter's hand. God doesn't design everything that happens, but if you let him, he can redesign anything that happens.